Chiquita is Spanish for little one and is the name chosen for Elisenda, perhaps the tiniest human being ever seen on Earth. But Chiquita is not like that. She is a dainty doll, a living person, seemingly carved by a supreme artist, and then endowed with life. She is so tiny that in traveling three times around the earth, she has never paid a cent of car fare. An attendant goes with her, and she passes for an infant. She is the only grown person, being 31 years old, who has repeatedly passed through the exposition gates without a ticket or a pass. She is no taller than the average child of a year weighs but 18 pounds, and rides about in an automobile that is the smallest vehicle ever made, hardly large enough for a good-sized doll. She has a fortune, for she has made $100,000 exhibiting herself. She has beauty, and she is popular. What more can she want? 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 <laughs> Just 26 inches tall, Chiquita was certainly the smallest of the many attractions at Buffalo's Pan American Exposition. But don't let her size fool you. Despite her diminutive stature, she was also among the fair's biggest attractions. For 15 cents, visitors to the World's Fair could meet Chiquita and speak with her, maybe even hear her sing. Throughout the exposition's six-month run, tens of thousands lined up to meet the charming and petite entertainer. According to the Buffalo Courier, her concession brought in an average of over $20,000 per year. At 15 cents admission, that means that each year she met more than 133,000 admirers. Chiquita, without question, caught the eyes of countless fans as she performed all around the world. In Buffalo, however, one caught hers in return. The two would get married, elope in fact, before a Buffalo judge, but Chiquita wouldn't get to enjoy any honeymoon on a beach or even at Niagara Falls for that matter. Not as long as her manager, Frank Bostock, had anything to say about it. Before we talk about any scandal, let's talk a little bit more about Chiquita herself, or should I say, Espiridion Ascenda. That's the name that her parents, Luarda and Diego, gave her, though she often went simply by Alice. We believe that she was born on December 14, 1869, but where she was born, well, that's a bit of a gray area. Newspapers and other sources show that she was born in Cuba's Yamuri Valley, near the city of Matanzas. Others, however, dispute that and claim that she was born in Guadalajara, Mexico. These sources argue that her Cuban origin story was nothing but a fictional account created 
to garner popularity among the American public. But why Cuba, you ask? Well, at the time that Chiquita began performing in the mid-1890s, the Caribbean island was fighting for its independence from Spain. Many Americans advocated intervention in the war, citing alleged atrocities against the Cuban people. Buoyed by an attack on the USS Maine in 1898, followed by some yellow journalism courtesy of William Randall Hearst, the U.S. declared war on Spain in support of Cuban liberation. Thus, a symbol of Cuban freedom, like Chiquita, would easily win the hearts and minds of the American people. Alice was the oldest of five children, three brothers and two sisters, all of whom were of regular height. Early in her career, one of her brothers, along with a cousin, looked after her and handled her interests. She was said to be a university graduate, she could speak three languages, English, Spanish, and Italian, and she loved to sing and dance. She began performing when she was in her early 20s. She first came to the United States in 1896, and as the story goes, that's the year that Alice met Frank Bostock, aka the Animal King. Now, we covered Bostock in an earlier episode of the podcast. Remember when he tried to electrocute an elephant at the Pan Am just to make a little bit of extra dough? Well, to rehash, Bostock was a circus showman akin to the much more famous P.T. Barnum. Born in England in 1866 to a family of showmen and animal keepers, Bostock put on shows in small circuses all around England and later the world. According to his attorney, W.E. Creamer, Bostock met Chiquita in Mexico around 1896. She was poorly dressed and lived in discomfort. He claimed that her mother was dead and he convinced her father to allow him to take charge of her. Bostock claims that he took her in, educated her, gave her horses, carriages, and everything else that she could wish for. He treated her as though she were his own child. Now, Alice may have been petite, but she was anything but a child, and in 1896, when Bostock took her under his management, she was already in her late 20s and was a mature and educated woman. By the time of the Pan American Exposition's opening in May of 1901, Alice had already worked for Bostock for five years. During that time, she appeared in New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Omaha, London, Berlin, Rome, and Vienna. She visited President McKinley at the White House, where he gave her his lucky carnation. In London, she was received by Queen Victoria, who purportedly gave her a diamond-studded watch the highlight of Chiquita's impressive and ever-expanding jewelry collection. Her first public appearance was in Boston in December of 1896. The Boston Globe noted that Chiquita had a remarkable face, filled with intelligence, beauty, and proportion. Taken all in all, this woman is a wonder, the paper noted. The Globe referred to her as the Cuban Adam, just one of her many nicknames, including the Cuban Dot, the Atom of Humanity, the Woman in Miniature, and the Queen of All Lilliputians. After coming to Buffalo in 1901, newspapers added the title, 
exposition bell to her resume. William Buchanan, director general of the exposition, even christened her mascot of the Pan Am. There, she would perform on the Midway, a section of the fair dedicated to limitless entertainment options from restaurants to rides and fun houses. As one writer noted, the Midway was everything amusing, grotesque, hilarious, foolish, novel, and absurd was foisted and intoned. Where all that ingenuity can devise, skill, project, or daring accomplish is brought for the diversion of a summer's day. The Midway was an indispensable addition to the fair's otherwise high-minded ideals. Where the exposition proper aspired to inspire and educate, the Midway sought only to entertain. As Connecticut Governor Thomas Weller observed, the exposition without the Midway would be as barren as a theater without actors. Chiquita performed on the Midway alongside a number of other attractions like Dreamland, A Trip to the Moon, Roltaire's House Upside Down, and of course, Bostock's Trained Wild Animals. During the fair's six-month run between May and November, Bostock's concessions raked in nearly $166,000, the equivalent of nearly $6 million today. And according to one account, more than 20,000 of that was thanks to Chiquita. And how much of that did Chiquita actually receive? Well, despite her undeniable appeal to audiences, the Animal King shelled out only about $20 per week, so about $700 per week today, roughly the same as some fast food chains pay their full-time employees. And while she certainly wasn't poor, the wages she earned were hardly equitable. She was being exploited like so many other performers on the Midway, and Bostock, who, despite claiming he treated her as one of his own children, felt no guilt in pocketing an estimated $1,000 from her show each week. To Bostock, Chiquita meant income, pure and simple. She was a one-of-a-kind talent and beloved by all, but she was contractually bound to him. Sure, she dined with his family and slept alongside his children, but was that for her benefit or simply a way to keep tabs on his attractive and diminutive star. Any doubts of Bostock's motivations would be revealed in early November of 1901. Remember that man at the Pan Am who caught Chiquita's eye? Well, his name was Anton or Tony Wechner. Now, when I say man, I'm taking some real liberties here. As it turns out, he was only 16 years old. But to be fair, he was about to turn 17 just after Thanksgiving. Wechner was born in Erie, Pennsylvania, and had come to Buffalo to work at the Pan Am. He found a job working for Bostock outside Chiquita's concession, where he would play the cornet, sell tickets, and lure visitors into her show. Accounts also state that he took care of her tiny carriage and the miniature horse that pulled it. The exposition had barely gotten underway when Chiquita and Tony took an interest in one another. In the evenings after her shows had ended, he'd visit with her in her apartment. He wrote her notes, brought her flowers, and gave her small gifts to win her heart, 
all while hiding their relationship from the Animal King. Alas, few secrets stay undiscovered, and when whispers about the couple's budding relationship found their way to the boss's ear, Bostock was quick to fire Tony from the show. That did little to dissuade him, however, at least at first. When Bostock found out that I was in love with Chiquita, he fired me, and I went to work for the Indian Congress, Tony explained. We still saw each other and wrote letters to each other every day, but Bostock found it all out in some way, and he nailed up all the windows and doors of the place where she slept each night so that I could not get to her. Now, whatever Bostock thought he was accomplishing by keeping the young lovers apart, he wasn't successful. As the old adage goes, absence makes the heart grow fonder, and, well, in this case, the heart also hatched a plan. It wasn't just a plan to spend time together, nor merely escape. It was a plan to elope, to marry under the cover of night, and finally be free of the Animal King. Communicating through letters, the lovers planned their every move. I finally got a fellow to leave a little hole in the ticket office under the large window, which was only large enough for her to crawl through, Tony confessed. By letter, I told her to be ready at 11.30 last night, and at that time, I went to the place and opened the cavity, and there she was. With great difficulty, I pulled her through the hole and then carried her down the little passageway to the fence. On the outside, I had two friends and a cab. We boosted her over the fence and they caught her. And in a minute, we were off to the city. The couple drove to the home of Justice Thomas H. Rockford at 61 Welker Street, where, just after midnight, married the couple. Now, this may sound like a happy ending, but the events of the evening were far from over. Unbeknownst to the newlyweds, the exposition grounds were stirring with workers and security looking for Chiquita. You see, it hadn't taken long for Bostock to discover that his star attraction was missing. He quickly assembled three search parties. One searched the premises, the second combed the Pan Am grounds, and the third searched nearby streets. He even summoned the Buffalo police, claiming that she had been kidnapped. Bostock told officers that he had heard screams from her apartment, and when he arrived, she was gone. Meanwhile, Tony and Chiquita headed back to the exposition. In an interview with the Buffalo Evening News, Tony stated that he had intended to return his new bride to her apartment so that no one would be suspicious of what had happened. When they got to the exposition's West Amherst Gate, however, one of Bostock's employees spotted them. It was Clyde Powers who first set eyes upon the lovebirds. Powers performed for Bostock's show as a clown, and witnesses recalled that when the search parties began combing the grounds, he hadn't yet removed his grease paint makeup. So, still dressed as a clown, Powers confronted the couple and ripped Chiquita away from Tony. He then threatened them at gunpoint. Once Wechner backed off, Powers lifted her into his arms and returned her to Bostock's where she remained heavily guarded throughout the night. The next morning, Chiquita remained under the Animal King's lock and key. 
According to Bostock, Chiquita admitted that she and Tony had acted foolishly and that the marriage was nothing but a terrible mistake. Of course she wanted to stay with Bostock. After all, he treated her like one of his own children. To Wechner, however, his bride's seclusion wasn't due to regret, but rather unlawful imprisonment, kidnapping even. And if Bostock wouldn't let him see his own wife, a judge surely would. On November 7, 1901, Wechner filed habeas corpus papers, ordering Bostock to produce Chiquita in court at 2 p.m. the following day. However, as the parties entered the courtroom, Tiny Alice was nowhere to be seen. Was Bostock defying a court order? Well, no, not exactly. At least, not in a way that the courts could prove. You see, Chiquita was in Canada, according to Bostock's attorney, W.E. Creamer. She had traveled with his wife and children to Niagara Falls, not by force, mind you, but on her own accord. And as Canada is most certainly beyond the jurisdiction of the Buffalo courts, he argued that there was nothing that Wechner, the courts, or even Bostock himself could do until she returned. Furthermore, he argued, the marriage was nothing more than a money-making scheme, a plot to steal Chiquita away from his client, the man who had so magnanimously saved her from poverty and acted as a father figure. The marriage, he alleged, was part of a plot devised by Wechner, along with two of Bostock's competitors at the Pan Am. Eugene Bartlett, Tony's attorney, wasn't buying Bostock's defense, and he argued that the showman illegally transported Chiquita in order to keep her from Wechner, and that Bostock treated his client's wife just about as well as he treated his elephants. The relationship between Tony and Alice was genuine, and he had the love letters to prove it. Despite their best attempts, however, the judge sided with Bostock. Chiquita was beyond the jurisdiction of the courts, and thus, the case was dismissed. But this wasn't the end of the legal battle. In fact, as Bostock was exiting the courtroom, Bartlett presented him with a summons. If he wasn't willing to produce Chiquita, fine. He'd be sued for damages instead. $20,000 to be exact from the suffering inflicted upon his client by the forced separation from the love of his life. Bostock left the court and returned to his room at the Iroquois Hotel. Minutes later, however, police took him into custody on an order which had just been issued to ensure that he appears in court at the trial in the suit of the damages. He accompanied an officer to City Hall where he arranged his release upon posting a $1,000 bail. Despite the legal challenges, Bostock wasn't ready to give in. After leaving Buffalo once the exposition had ended, he secreted Chiquita away to perform in Boston, hiding her whereabouts from her husband. But advertisements to see the performer spilled across newspapers, echoing those which had drawn so many to see her in Buffalo. As fate would have it, one person who saw the ads was none other than her husband, who had returned to his hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania, empty-handed. Once Tony discovered the location of his wife, he and his father caught a train to Massachusetts. There, he again involved the courts. On January 8th, Massachusetts Supreme Court Associate Justice Morton heard the case and listened to Wechner's pleas. He also listened to Chiquita, who testified before the court. 
She claimed that while in Boston, Bostock locked her in a hotel room and pressured her to sign a new contract, one that would keep her under his control through the end of 1904. Despite the evidence, however, Morton ruled in favor of the Animal King. I feel that the marriage between this little woman and this 17-year-old boy should not have taken place under any circumstances, Judge Morton explained. I do not think the marriage was the offspring of love or affection. There seems to be some ulterior motive behind this. I think it's our duty to look beyond the mere surface and ascertain the motive. He continued, The wife is not an ordinary person nor of ordinary capacity for a woman of her years. I hesitate to give her wishes the same force and effect that I would give to an ordinary person of her years. While in Boston, Wechner was permitted to visit his wife, but only under the supervision of a team of guards. Bostock offered him a job playing cornet in his band once again, but Wechner couldn't stomach the embarrassment and turned it down. Following the court's ruling, he returned to Erie without the company of his loving wife. In late January 1902, as Tony lingered at home with his father, Bostock and his show were in Europe performing at the English Zoo and Variety Circus in Glasgow. Perhaps out of pity or perhaps something more sinister, Bostock wrote to Tony again, offering him a job. In a letter dated January 30th, the Animal King wrote, Dear Sir, Apparently you've realized how foolish you've been, but I do not attribute all the blame to you as I think your father the principal agitator. Consequently, I have still no ill feeling against you and am still agreeable to employing you as per our conversation in Alice's building the last night of the Buffalo Fair. I am at all times a man of my word, you can therefore report to Mr. Clarence W. Rowley, 373 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, and he will furnish you a ticket to come here, hoping that on your arrival you will be prepared to do what is right and be a good lad. I have conveyed your wishes to Alice as per your letter. Respectfully yours, Frank C. Bostock. The boy-husband-widower, as the papers called Tony, immediately took Bostock up on his offer, making arrangements to travel to Boston. When he arrived, however, he discovered that there was, in fact, no ticket waiting for him, nor accommodations. If he wanted to see his beloved Alice, he'd have to wait back home for her return. Bostock kept his star attraction on the move. In March, Chiquita appeared again in Boston, followed by stays at Baltimore, Norfolk, Virginia, Bloomington, Illinois, Davenport, Iowa, and Paducah, Kentucky, and other cities throughout the South and Midwest. According to author Margaret Creighton in her book, The Electrifying Fall of the Rainbow City, it would be mid-June before Tony and Chiquita reunited, and even then it would be under the strict supervision of Mr. and Mrs. Charles Badger whom Bostock hired to oversee the couple as they toured. Micromanage might be a better word. The Badgers controlled what dresses Chiquita wore, what food she ate, and for how long she'd be able to see her husband, who was now touring with the show. After losing her once, Bostock wasn't taking any chances with Chiquita. She was simply worth too much to him. So much, in fact, that 
get her insured for a quarter million dollar policy, which, if you're curious, breaks down to $9,259 per pound or $9,615 per inch, depending on how you wanted to look at it. By late summer, the Badger's abuse had pushed Chiquita and Tony to the limit. But given her contract with Bostock, the couple was stuck. That is, until a good Samaritan, along with some true friends, helped them out of a sticky situation. On Sunday, August 24th, 1902, Chiquita and Tony began a week-long series of shows at the Elks Fair in Elgin, Illinois. As had become custom, they were staying at a boarding house along with the Badgers, who had them under near-constant supervision. The boarding house, known as the Cottage House, was a five-story inn situated on a quiet street and operated by the proprietor, uh, Mrs. Page. Mrs. Badger gave Page clear instructions that she was to have a room in close proximity to that of Chiquita, citing the amount of trouble she'd caused in the past. Now, if she had said nothing more, perhaps what comes next would have never happened, but here we are. Mrs. Badger, perhaps in a moment of weakness, went on to vent about the couple, even admitting that she had gone so far as to whip Chiquita and taken great pains to keep her away from Tony. She added that Bostock had expressed an interest in separating the two as quickly as possible and getting rid of Tony, whatever that might mean. It seems, however, that Mrs. Badger had opened up to the wrong person and Whatever confidence she had felt in sharing these secrets with Mrs. Page was, in fact, a figment of her imagination. For, in short order, Mrs. Page passed this information onto the couple who wasted no time in planning their escape. For this, their second flight from Bostock in under a year, Weckner enlisted the help of some of his friends from Pennsylvania. He telegraphed them, asking them to come to Elgin and rendezvous with him and his wife outside the boarding house. For the sake of transparency, I'll add that another account of the story states that it was the policeman from the fair and not Wechner's friends who aided in the escape. Tuesday, August 26th, seemed like an ordinary day, at least as far as Mr. and Mrs. Badger were concerned. They headed home from the Elks Fair where Chiquita had spent the day performing and they headed to bed. And that's when Tony's plan went into effect. He opened a second-story window and awaited his friend's arrival. Tony watched the quiet street from his fourth-story window. Around 2 a.m., he spotted the carriage and began to lower his wife to the ground. For her safety, given her size, Chiquita was stitched inside of a pillowcase. Once down safely, he followed suit. Climbing into the carriage, they sped off, heading south to the railroad station in Geneva, Illinois, 25 miles away. Once there, and with Chiquita still tucked inside the pillowcase, they boarded trains to Chicago and then to Erie. But just because Chiquita was away from Bostock, that didn't mean that she was free from his threats and torment. Remember, legally speaking, she was contractually bound to him until the end of the St. Louis Exposition in 1904. The Animal King threatened the couple and even hired detectives to stake out their home. Things got even worse when 
he discovered that Chiquita would be appearing in a new show, one managed by none other than her own husband. Upon hearing this, Bostock took legal action. He filed a suit against them in Pittsburgh and an order prohibiting any display or performance of Chiquita. An initial hearing took place on September 16th, but due to delays, it would be several weeks before any ruling would be reached. Still, that didn't stop newspapers from covering the case which had so easily captured the public's attention. Nor did it stop throngs of supporters from gathering at the courthouse in support of Chiquita, only to be disappointed by postponements. Finally, in the first week of January of 1903, Bostock's injunction was dissolved and Chiquita was free to appear wherever and for whomever she liked. Fittingly, among Chiquita's first appearances following her independence from Bostock was where else but Buffalo. There, she appeared under new management for a midway party where she performed with a number of other Pan Am throwbacks. That year, 1903, would be an emotional roller coaster for the star. After her appearance in Buffalo, she traveled to Sharon, Pennsylvania, about 60 miles northwest of Pittsburgh. There, she received a package from Buffalo, a gift containing stockings, silk handkerchiefs, and pieces of candy which she ate, and which were poisoned. Physicians tended to her for over two hours, during which time she was violently ill. The candy was found to contain traces of arsenic, which some believed to be a deliberate attempt on her life. Shortly after this incident, Chiquita became pregnant. Newspapers celebrated with headlines commenting, what a mite it will be. Sadly, however, as author Margaret Creighton notes, in mid-October 1903, Chiquita signed her last will and testament and prepared for a cesarean section at St. Vincent's Hospital in Erie. The surgery was described as a last resort to save her life. Chiquita survived the operation, but her baby boy was stillborn. In the years to come, Chiquita performed throughout the U.S. and Europe under the management of the husband for whom she had fought so hard. She returned to Buffalo on occasion, where she was always met with fanfare, sparked no doubt by nostalgia for the city's great exposition. In 1904, she appeared at Buffalo's Athletic Park. There, a press agent recounted the tale of her escapes while she met with her adoring fans. Another chapter to that story would have to be added, however, because after receiving guests the evening of August 30th, two men tried to kidnap her from the park. Bundling her into their arms, the men hurried her to an awaiting carriage, but Tony, always on guard, responded quickly. He, along with another man, ran after and tackled the would-be kidnapper to the ground. In the ensuing scuffle, Chiquita fell and broke her arm. She visited the area again in 1907, appearing at William Street's Temple Theater, and then again in 1910 at the New Academy Theater on Main Street. Newspapers advertised that inside the theater was a new attraction, a doll. A doll of Chiquita, nearly life-sized and that doll would be given away in a raffle to a lucky child. All they had to do was fill out an entry form found in the local papers and mail it in. And who would go on to win this one-of-a-kind prize? One Thelma Brennan of 153 Ellicott Street. 
Our story today comes to an end in Guadalajara, Mexico. That's where on April 9, 1928, Chiquita passed away at the age of 58. She had traveled to Mexico to regain her health, as her father-in-law claimed, but decades of travel and performances had taken their toll on the star. National papers took little notice of Chiquita's death. It seems the fascination once held by the public had faded. Even less attention was paid to Tony Wechner, her adoring husband, who had fought for and protected his partner for so long. The story of their secret midnight marriage and subsequent escapes from Bostock were mentioned in her obituary, but little more of her career. She, like so much, had become but a footnote in the larger story of Buffalo's Pan American Exposition. One last thought, an appeal really, if you happen to be related to that little girl, Thelma Brennan of 153 Ellicott Street, who won that Chiquita doll back in 1910, let us know, maybe take a look around your attic. Like Chiquita herself, that doll is one of a kind and the museum would love to know if it's still around. Today's episode was researched, written, and produced by me, Anthony Greco. As always, thank you for listening, and if you like what you hear, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, tell your friends about the show. Also, be sure to stop in the museum, check out our exhibits, maybe even come to one of our many Wednesday evening happy hour history talks. We'd love to see you. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by MT Bank and from our donors, members, and friends. <laughs>